So yeah, we kind of, when we get to Matthew 8, where we're going to be looking tonight, we really hit a section that's very different from what we've been looking at. And what I love, one of the things I love about the Gospels is you get a real mix of Christ just giving you deep teaching, very uh, rich teaching like we've had in the Sermon on the Mount. But then you get to chapters like 8 and 9 where you're reminded that Jesus is a historical person that walked on this earth. And I think that is just always an important thing to draw your mind back to and remind yourself of, that Jesus is a historical person. He really walked the earth. He really did things. He really lived as 100% man while being 100% God, but also 100% man. And for me, anytime you pull me out of the historical context of a person or an event, those things can kind of seem mythical or unreal. Um, and it's not like just Jesus. I mean, you bring up Napoleon, like the uh, French emperor. or you, Napoleon, I know for a fact, was a historical person. But I'm just so far removed from him in history that it seems kind of like, I don't know, he seems kind of fake, as much as I know he's real. Or, like, you can go back to, like, Julius Caesar. I know Julius Caesar, historically, was a real person. But again, he's so far removed from me that it kind of seems fake. And that happens to me with future stuff too, right? Like the year 2300. Yeah, I think the year 2300, unless Christ returns, is going to happen. But like it seems like a mythical, like kind of far off thing. It's just so far removed. And so for Jesus, that happens to me also. Being so far removed, you can lose sight of the fact, hey, wait a second, we are talking about a historical man here who did real things on this earth. And so chapters eight and nine to me are really important. They're major shifts, but they're really important because they draw me back to the humanity of Jesus and who he was and is as a person. So we hit a major transition tonight. It's been a few months that we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, easily one of the richest and one of my favorite passages. Chapters five, through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so if you've had an outline going, or if you have an outline going of Matthew, it's like chapters one through four are more on the historical side. Of course, all these historical parts have rich theology blended into them and things being taught to us blended in. But chapters one through four are really kind of the historical piece. Here's how Jesus arrived on the scene. Here's how he showed up on earth. And here's how his ministry was introduced to us. And then chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. If somebody, who would want to give us a shot at giving us like a one sentence, maybe two sentence recap on what the Sermon on the Mount is all about? Ian. What to do and what not to do. What to do and what not to do. In a lot of ways, I would agree with that for sure. Um, yeah, I think... I think that's that's not an answer I would disagree with. What else? Anybody want to give it a shot? How we what or maybe I won't even bind you to two sentences. Just somebody tell me about the Sermon on the Mount. What's it all about? Owen. Um basically Jesus telling parables about um, the way you should act and the way you should not act. Yeah, so kind of what Ian was saying. What were you going to say, Josh? I'm just going to make up a name. Uh, Joe. Bodge. Bodge. Josh. Josh? Okay. Um, Cole? I was just going to say that it's about Jesus. I think it's about love. I don't know. I can't remember. Love's a big part of it. I think Alejandro like, laid it out and I can't remember. Yeah, love's a big part of it. You know, Ian, go ahead. Um, kind of... Busting all these myths that the scribes and Pharisees had set up to like make themselves look better. Yeah, I think you're getting a little closer there. You know, a big part of it was Jesus shows up and the Jews have this idea of what it means to be the people of God. 
And just like today, today you've got religious sects, you've got, um, you've got uh, different denominations, you've got different religious organizations, same thing in the day of Jesus, right? You had the Zealots, you had the Essenes, they were kind of the minor groups that people don't know as much about, but then you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are kind of the ones who really uh, run the show, but they all have these ideas of what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom, a child of God, a part of God's kingdom, a member of God's kingdom. And Jesus shows up and in many ways completely shatters the mold and completely shatters what they're thinking. And if I was going to describe chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus showing us what the kingdom of God is truly about, what the heart's of citizens of his kingdom are truly about. Because repeatedly, he does talk about what to do and what not to do, absolutely. But repeatedly, he drives it very, very deep, like way past a superficial level of what to do and what not to do. But where's your heart at? Ultimately, where your heart is at is what feeds what you do and don't do. But Jesus repeatedly drives much deeper down to where's your heart. Just think about the Beatitudes, where he gives us the characteristics or the the heart attitudes of those who are part of God's kingdom, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. He talks about how we're, as followers of Christ, Our purpose here is to be salt and light to this world, to glorify the Father, that your life is no longer about you, and your life is not about making yourself look good. It's about making God look good. And that whatever... He also points out that as humans, the Pharisees, the Sadducees did this, but we all have this tendency. We have the tendency to take the the things you should and shouldn't do and just make them superficial standards. But Jesus reminds those who want to be part of his kingdom once again that it's deeper at a heart level. So you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit murder, but I'm saying to you, don't hate. Don't harbor anger and hatred in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But Jesus is saying to us that citizens of his kingdom don't allow lust to have a safe harbor in their heart. He, he addresses um, the, you, uh, he addresses vows and he addresses divorce and all these things he addresses at a much deeper heart level. He goes on to prayer and acts of obedience. Ian? I think that if you look at the New Testament in particular, it's like a history device, like a recording device kind of thing. It kind of copies stuff like the Pharisees and Sadducees of that time are like big tech corporations, politicians, because they are always telling you, hey, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. But then through different means, less like the Holy God coming to earth and telling you, no, these people are wrong. Through different means, we find out that, yeah, they don't actually keep that. So the Bible is kind of like, it repeats its stuff, everything in it, in different points in time. What I, and what I think you're getting at, the truth that you're getting at, is that the human sinful nature is a common thread throughout history. It manifests itself in different ways, right? Like the human sinful nature manifests itself in different ways today because of technology or just whatever. I mean, there's so many different avenues, but it's still the same sinful human nature. There's not any point you go anytime after Adam and Eve and you're going to find sinful humanity and it manifests itself in different ways. And one of the key ways in the time contemporary with Christ was Pharisees and Sadducees, right? But legalistic religion isn't something that went away when they went away. It's something that continues on. 
um, in false religion today and then in corporate hypocrisy today, right? Like you've got a lot of corporate hypocrisy out there where they claim like, oh, hey, we really care about these social causes. But it's really just them trying to make themselves look good. Same thing as Pharisees and Sadducees. One more, last one. I mostly think that it's really played out in the Catholic Church because they have a lot of different rules that you have to comply with yeah. or you cannot take communion. You are not living the Catholic faith. So that's kind of like... Roman Catholicism is a prominent example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, yeah, he goes chapter six. He's talking about, hey, your righteous deeds, they should be done from a heart that seeks to glorify God, not yourself. Um, the, the golden rule comes up in chapter seven. Um, you got the, the tree and the fruit, the two foundations. Repeatedly, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount showing us, here's what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, my people, here is how they should live. And ultimately, it drives us to the gospel because none of us live that way perfectly. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he repeats Leviticus 19.2, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. None of us are perfect, right? So that instantly reveals to us the need for a Savior. It drives us to the gospel. But now, in chapter 8, we hit a passage that's much more focused on narrative. There's still teaching. There's still going to be teaching that Jesus does within this narrative. That's a remarkable thing about the life of Christ. Um, once his ministry begins, he's just nonstop teaching. And everything for him is an opportunity. Every life circumstance is an opportunity. It, it, and it's no exception what we're going to look at in chapters 8 and 9. So there's still plenty of, plenty of teaching, but it's not until chapter 10 where we get to another really long piece of dialogue from Jesus. Chapters 8 and 9 are, on the whole, mostly a narrative telling us the actions of Christ, what he did, where he went, and the things he taught and said along the way. And chapters 8 and 9 are primarily composed of miracles that he performs um, as he travels. These miracles, they show us the deity of Christ. They show us also the heart of Christ. And so often we see the humanity of Christ come through in these miracles simply in the level of compassion that he has. Or sometimes we hear him say like, he, he saw the people and he was grieved by the attitudes of the people, the hearts of the people, the lack of faith in the people. So within these miracles, you get this really interesting demonstration of who Jesus is, his nature as 100% God, yet at the same time, 100% man. Mathematically, that doesn't make sense, right? You can't be 200% of something. But in Christ, we have this um, unique um, co combination of full deity and full humanity. Tonight, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. These 13 verses take us through two miracles of Jesus. And in both of these miracles, Christ teaches us that he came to serve and save those who are the outcast. Those who are the outcast. Such an encouraging passage, too. Because I think anybody feels like an outcast at some point in life, you know? I mean, all of us have trouble fitting in or feel kind of out of place often in this world. And tonight we come across two people who are very out of place, especially if you think about these two people from the perspective of the people of God. Like, think about... Uh, the Old Testament, the Jews considered themselves the people of God. And these two people are very far outside of that category. They would be rejected by what is traditionally known as the people of God. Yet those are it's two people that Jesus chooses to serve and reveal himself through. The first miracle we'll look at is in verses 1 through 4, the healing of the leper the healing of the leper. 
When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Notice the healing that takes place here. How long does it take for uh, this uh, miracle to have its effect? It's instantaneous. Instantaneous. Immediately. And how, how effective was this miracle? 50%? 60%? All the way, right? Like, it's a big difference. When people claim miracles a lot of times, most of the time, if not all the time, it's like some very vague, like hard to figure out, like, okay, maybe this happened. There's some room for doubt. Reasonable doubt's definitely there. Not in this case. Not when Jesus performs miracles. When Jesus performs miracles, it is very clear. Hey, here's a leper. In one second, he's a leper. Next second, instantly not a leper, right? So these are the kind of miracles that you find in Scripture. When, even when we get to the apostles. It's like, here's a dead person. No pulse. Boom. Instantly alive. Like, these are the miracles that we see in the Bible. No room for doubt at all. It's also an example to us of how miracles in and of themselves don't impart faith. That would be the, that's the argument you hear sometimes, right? Like if God is real and he would just show up here in like a burning cloud and tell me I'm real, then I would believe him. If he would just do a miracle for me. Now, do you know how many times we see throughout Scripture where people are witness to a miracle? They have no doubt it's a miracle, yet they still refuse to repent and believe. It's because they love their sin. And until the Holy Spirit takes a person's heart and changes it from where they love sin to where they hate it and want to be forgiven of it and they love Christ, until that happens, no amount of miracles are going to change a person's attitude or give them faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit alone imparts faith. Remember when we looked at uh, the rich man and Lazarus? And Lazarus was like, hey, if somebody comes back from the dead, God and goes and tells my, or Abraham and goes and tells my family about, um, about this, they'll believe. And the response is, no, they're not going to believe even if somebody's raised from the dead, right? Uh, or even look at the end of Revelation, like God's pouring out his wrath. People know it's from God. And the wise thing to do is if God's pouring out his wrath on you, the logical choice is to repent, right? Doesn't that only make sense? Yet you look in Revelation, people know it's God. People know it's God pouring out his wrath on their sin, and yet they refuse to repent. Instead, they curse God more because they love sin and hate God. And so miracles, while they are used by God to reveal who he is and to strengthen the faith of believers, in and of themselves do not grant faith. The Holy Spirit alone imparts But here we have Jesus coming down in verse 1 from the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, coming down. The Sermon on the Mount was in the hill country right up against the Sea of Galilee. Here he's coming down from that area, and he's heading more inland towards that area between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, that area known as Capernaum. And and Jesus comes down in, in verse 1, and it says, large crowds are following him. Now, in my mind, very often we come across this large crowd scenario. Sometimes with like Peter and Paul, we see it with Jesus numerous times. My imagination and mind always wants to downplay this. Like I just see Jesus coming down the hill and there's like 15, 20 people around him like trying to talk with him. You know, that's not at all what this is. This is really like mass hysteria. This is a lot of people crushing in on Jesus. 
crushing in on the disciples, wanting to get close to him. It, it, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus has these crushing mobs trying to gather around him. First of all, look at how they reacted at the end of chapter 7 to his teaching. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed by his teaching. He was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. People get excited over um, good teachers, right? People get excited over speakers. Look at like go to look at some of these speakers who can go around and draw just thousands of people, fifteen thousand people into an auditorium, or they put a podcast out there and it gets like a hundred million downloads, right? Like people get really enthralled by powerful speakers and powerful teachers. These people were amazed by the teaching of Christ. But it isn't even just that he has mind-blowing teaching. Remember back in chapter 4, before we even get to the Sermon on the Mount, before he, they even give us this tidbit that they were blown away by his teaching, you go back in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Name for me a speaker that you think people get excited about. Me. You? Yeah. Come on, man. Nobody, I like you, but nobody's that excited over you speaking. No offense. Uh, Maybe someday. No, no, I was asking you if you were coming to me. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to criticize you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday. Yes, go ahead. What would you? Uh, Justin Peters. Justin, okay, yeah, but that's a, that's a great answer, but I doubt many people know who Justin Peters is in the room. That's a great answer. Um, somebody else? John MacArthur. John MacArthur. Your, your answer should not be discounted. Like, culturally, huge. Maybe, like, you would say culturally, like, Justin Peters has got to be, like, up in the, like, top five right now. Huge. So I like that you said that. But John MacArthur. Let's go with John MacArthur. Okay. You go to a conference, people embarrass themselves to get next to John MacArthur. Like you go to like Shepherd's Conference and grown men are very literally running. They haven't run or ran in 10 years, 15, 20 years. Now they're at Shepherd's Conference, good grief, they're running to get up to the front so they can be close to John MacArthur. It's kind of goofy. Then you go to like, or when we were in college, we'd go to like this uh, thing called Resolve Conference. It was like the college conference of Grace Church. Same thing. Like you got people like crushing and trampling each other. They go like get, be on, up on a close row and John Piper teaches. So anyhow, you got John MacArthur. You got people like him who can already stir up a crowd. Now imagine that John MacArthur is as good of a teacher as Jesus. Then imagine what the crowd's like, and then add on top of that, that he's healing like sick people, healing all sorts of diseases and casting out demons. Like you understand how crazy people are going to get and from how far away crowds are going to come to hear this man who teaches in an amazing way, teaches in ways that we've never heard before. The teaching is, is really in a way revolutionary and it's just powerful and he heals people he heals sickness if you've got a disease go like if you had a sick child how much would you fight through the crowds to get to jesus pretty heavily right if you had a sick spouse how hard would you fight to get through the crowds to jesus i mean this is like john macarthur on steroids to the infinity power like people are going to get crazy right that's the scene here you've got thousands of people crushing in on jesus trying to get near him because the news as chapter 4 tells us the news has already spread throughout the region this powerful man is proclaiming the kingdom of god 
and he heals suffering, diseases, pains, paralytics. He heals them all. Those are the crowds that we find. And through these masses, somehow, it's really hard to even imagine what it must have been like, but somehow, verse 2 tells us that this leper works his way through the crowd. He fights his way through the crowd. Or maybe because he's a leper, maybe that's like how you get through the crowd. Like, everybody's like, whoa, whoa. Like, you know? Like, maybe that's a... Like, yeah, maybe that's how you get through the crowd. That's the key. There's probably a few people who followed him. was like, yeah, I'm going to now, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but verse 2 tell, shows us this leper who comes through. He comes to Jesus and bows down before Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's interesting that he calls Christ Lord. It's, we don't know, we can't know exactly what he meant. Lord could be used in various ways. Most often, Lord was used in two ways. Either like a servant, slave, or servant-employee type of relationship. Like your master, your uh, workmaster, your boss, you would, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll be right. You, that would be like a, a position, a title. But also, Lord, when used towards, in, used towards most other circumstances, you're talking about God. That's why we translate the Septuagint, translated Yahweh from the Old Testament is Lord. Lord was how you addressed God because they knew Yahweh is our ultimate master. He is our ultimate boss. We belong to him. We are his people. We are his servants. We are his slaves. And so it's an interesting thing for him to call Jesus when, I mean, he's never interacted with Jesus before. He doesn't, he's not an employee of Jesus. He's not a slave of Jesus. So perhaps this is a declaration of his faith in the divinity of Christ. It's also possible, though, that he just recognizes the power, the authority, and it's just like a, a very high level of reverence and respect that he has for Jesus. It's impossible for us to totally know. But it's an interesting way for him to address Christ. And his faith is evident and tremendous in verse 2. In verse 2, it's, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's no doubt in his mind. He recognizes that Christ has the power to do whatever he wants. Kind of makes me think he recognized the deity of Christ, that he recognized, he calls Christ Lord because of who he is. God, I, I kind of think that's why, why he calls him Lord, because when he shows up, he has no doubt that Jesus has all power to do this. That if Jesus wants to, he can make them clean. If you are willing, you can make them clean. Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. That's an easy thing for us to read over and just not recognize or realize how remarkable that is. Because what was leprosy to a Jew? Uncleanliness. Uncleanliness. Like, uncleanliness, like, um, this guy shows up and he hasn't taken a bath in like two days and he kind of smells funny, uncleanliness. That kind of uncleanliness? What kind of uncleanliness? Like, abominable. Yeah, like ceremonially, like religiously unclean. Like, you can't go into worship or, or conduct yourselves as part of the people of God. Like, you're cut off. You are unclean. But is it just that person that's unclean? How does, as a Jew, how does that affect your relationship with him? Huh? Never mind. You, I thought you asked, you asked me a question? I don't think so. What were you going to say, Asher? Like who? Like who? Yeah, like, uh, but worse, you know? 
It is. It's like the elders say you can't come to church for 10 days, but instead it's like you can't come to church, like, indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. It's maybe sort of. Yeah. Sounds like it'd be, it sounds like it'd be pretty hard to be around them. Yeah, absolutely, Ian. It's like you, you don't, it's not like the unclean, like you smell like a dumpster. It's the unclean, like you can't go to certain places. Yeah. You can't have relationships within God's people. Like, you can't touch this person. That's why I was joking. Like, that's probably how it got to Jesus, is everybody's like, well, leper, like, don't get away from him. Like, you don't touch this person. You don't associate with this person because that makes you unclean. Like, it, it's like the whole exposure thing with COVID, I guess. Like, hey, you've touched an unclean person. Now you are unclean. It, and so... For Jesus, like Jesus does the opposite of what anybody else would have done here. Anybody else would have been like, man, that's not six feet. Like, <laughs> get back. <laughs> Jesus does the opposite. He touches him. The ceremonial, ceremonially unclean man. Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed, and immediately... His leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus says something interesting in verse 4. Something that can be a little confusing. Jesus says to him the opposite of what we would kind of think, right? Like Jesus would be like, hey, your job now, go out and tell everybody. Like, make this known that I am the Son of God and I've done this miracle to show it. But that's not what Jesus says in verse 4. In verse 4, Jesus says to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Why does he say that? You know, this actually comes up pretty often within um, the Gospels. And there's ways when we get to it where I think we'll see that Jesus is saying that because it's not the time for people to latch on to him as a revolutionary or earthly king who's going to overthrow the powers and establish Israel as the predominant nation on earth, which is a lot of the way that they thought of the Messiah. In their thoughts, the Messiah was going to come, establish his kingdom from Israel, and Israel was going to become the predominant nation that ruled over the earth. That was what they anticipated. And so a lot of times when Jesus does his miracles, his message is, hey, this isn't to go cause the world to be, um, or this isn't, don't tell people. We're not trying to get people to latch on to me as an earthly king. Here, though, I think it's Jesus really more focusing on the fact that because of his cleansing, because of him no longer being a leper, he can now go back to being a part of the worshiping people of God. He can go back to being ceremonial, ceremonially clean. Um, and that's the priority. The priority here is get immediately to the priest. Was Christianity a religion back but like at that time, or was it formed when Christ died in the early church? Well, that's always an interesting question, right? Like, at least the Bible tells us, I forget when, I think Antioch, like maybe chapter 14 of Acts, perhaps, 13 of Acts. They were called Christians. For the first time. Yeah. So at least the Bible throws us that. Like, hey, here's the first time somebody called them Christians. It was the church in Antioch. Um, but... At what point would you say? I would say that the very second, um, geez, there's a debate, right? I mean, you obviously can see very clearly the progression of the church in the Bible. Maybe some people would say when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and first indwells believers, because um, that's kind of the uniting baptism of the Spirit that baptizes us all into one body. You're getting me into a philosophical debate, though, that I don't think I can give you the exact answer to. Does that satisfy you enough? Yes. All right. 
Didn't the Romans make up the word like Christian or Christianity? Yeah, so who first calls them? Let's look at that in Acts. Now you got me looking for things that I'm only down to like maybe it's in this chapter. Acts chapter 13. Somebody look up and they first called them Christians. And who was it that first called them Christians? Weren't they called the Nazarenes or the Ways? Yeah, yeah. That, that Pretty often they, people called them that. Uh, I just read of this. But yeah, I don't remember. It's the church in Antioch that first gets called Christians. And, but I don't remember who first calls them that. Um, that's a great question. Acts 11.26. Acts, see, I, that's the day I was on the wrong chapter. All right. So they left Tarsus to look for Saul. And when they had found him, they took him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church. So they called uh, Luke calls it a church there, um, and taught consider, considerable numbers. And the di- disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So I guess, yeah, I, I don't know who they were that called them Christians, but the community. So it's basically like classified as a religion, but really Christianity is a relationship with God. So even before Christ came, there were believers yeah, in God. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look at Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 just outlines for you example after example from the Old Testament of what Hebrews 11 calls saints who were, because of their faith in God, God's people. Absolutely. I think the Romans would have first called them Christians because... Um, Antioch would be a Roman town. Yeah. Full of Gentiles. And the, uh, Rome, the Roman word for um, Christian, or the Christian, Christianus, sounds a lot like Christian. So yeah. it's yeah. probably a Roman. It's a good thought. One more. There was a, my footnote says it's a term of derision, meaning of the party of Christ. All right, term of derision, that's interesting. But uh, yeah, good question, tough question. It's the best I got. Um, Let's see here. So back to the leper, right? Um, Also, uh, Jesus here, there's this outcast, he heals him, restores him to the people. Let's look at the second miracle, miracle number two. Verses 5 to 13. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Jesus shouldn't have touched the leper, right? So here's somebody that Jesus shouldn't have touched in the first miracle, but now, a Roman centurion? I mean, this is like the Taliban, right? I mean, like this is like the occupying force. They hate the Romans. Roman soldiers, they're the worst. They're the power that is oppressing them. So for a Roman centurion to come up and, for, and, and address Jesus as Lord, that's a remarkable thing. That's a remarkable thing. And again, we don't know exactly what he meant by that. 
But what would cause a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, somebody in that position of authority, what would cause him to come up to this rabbi, this Jewish teacher, that call him Lord and trust beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man can heal my servant who isn't even here. He's back home. Like, there's something going on in the heart and the mind of this centurion for him to even do something like that. So when he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, like, I just can't really understand with this kind of faith and this kind of action what he could have thought about Jesus other than recognizing that at least at some level, this is the Son of God. Like, he recognizes something remarkable about Christ for him to do that. So it's remarkable from the centurion side, but then it's also remarkable from Jesus' side. Because if you're the people, that one of this, the masses gathered around Jesus, you hate the Romans, they're your oppressors, you've been waiting for the Messiah come to, to come and set you free from the oppressors. So this centurion walks up and you're thinking, all right, now's the time for Jesus to lay down the law, right? Like now's the time for Jesus to, to, show, to, to show kind of like who's in authority, who's the boss. But what does Jesus do? He heals the centurion's servant. He, the centurion makes Jesus marvel. In verse 10, Jesus heard this. He marveled and said to those who are following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Could you imagine the punch to the gut that that must have been? Like, the, here's somebody who approaches that's supposed to be the enemy from the crowd's point of view. And Jesus commends his faith over the Israel Jewish faith. Commends the faith of this man over their faith. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, that has got to steam. So you're following this guy that you trust with your life so much you die for him. And this leader of Roman, this Roman leader of Roman troops and comes in, he's like, and he tells your rabbi this, tells him, hey, what do I seriously suffering? And did you heal him? And you're like, these people are, are conquerors. They just came in, took over the place, and then Jesus heals them. I, I would be questioning my life choices. Yeah, it's a remarkable thing. Jesus in verse 7 says, I will come and heal him. Okay, you and me come to your house, I will heal him. Well, a Jew is not supposed to be going into the house of a Roman soldier. But as we've seen with Jesus already, he's okay with breaking human tradition, right? He's okay with breaking human tradition. So Jesus says, I'll come. But the centurion says, no, 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 no. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. In verse nine, it's a lot of words. And like when you first read it, you're like, what's he saying? He's simply saying that as a centurion, that means he's got, I think it what was a hundred. That's what it meant, right? A hundred soldiers up under him that he's in authority over. So as a centurion over a hundred soldiers under him, he understands the concept of authority. He understands the concept of power, and he knows that Jesus has it. He knows that Jesus has the authority and has the power to do this without even stepping foot in his house. And Jesus marvels at his faith. Jesus marvels at his faith. And in verses 11 and 12, he says something that just really is going to, again, blow the minds of the crowd. Because the Jews thought, hey, we are the children of Abraham. The covenant promises of the Old Testament were made to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And we are the descendants of Abraham. What were they clinging to? They were clinging to an external. Their faith was in the external things. 
in what was on the outside. Their faith was in their heritage from Abraham. Their faith was not in God. The centurion's faith was in God. And what does God want? Are we saved by the flesh? Are we saved by anything we have in our, within ourselves as people? No. We're saved by faith through grace. We're saved by faith in God through his grace and mercy. The centurion understood what faith was all about. The crowds following Jesus, their faith was not in God, but in themselves and in their Abrahamic lineage. Jesus flips things on him and says, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point Jesus is making is that, look, you are not getting into my kingdom by anything that is human, by anything that is of the flesh. Because you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I don't care. That's not getting you into heaven to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's those who have the faith that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. And those who have the faith that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had are going to come from all over the world. And they are my citizens. They are citizens of our kingdom. They're going to come from England, from the United States, from India, Ethiopia, Papua New Guinea, east, west, all over the world. From Rome. But sadly, many who are physically descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will not be there because of a lack of faith. Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed from that moment. Does that kind of make sense what I'm saying there about what Jesus said to them about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and people coming from east and west? Does that make sense? Why it was a rebuke to the crowds in a commendation of the Roman centurion. Because that's really a key point. You know, these verses should really, first of all, ask us, where is our faith? When, just like we've been asked time and time again, when we stand before the Father and they say, or the Father says, why would I let you into my kingdom? Is your answer anything other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? The righteousness of Christ? Is it anything else? Is it, is it the church you went to? Because that's not going to work. Is it the family you come from? That's not going to work. Is it how good you are or how well you tried to behave or... How good? No, none of that's going to work. Nothing in ourselves can satisfy the wrath of God. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The death of Christ alone purchases the forgiveness that we need from the Father. And so these verses, especially this second miracle, should cause us to ask, okay, Am I like the centurion? Is my faith all in on Christ? Or am I like the rebuked crowds here, the shocked crowds, whose faith is in something external, something of this world? For them, it was their lineage from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For us, it could be any number of things. They all fall infinitely short. Do we have faith? In Christ, the faith that we see in the leper, the faith that we see in the centurion. I, 
And then I think the second thing it causes me to examine is how humble is my faith? There's two things that we should see here. We should see a very high view of God. Look at the high view of God that both of these men had. Both of them instantly approach Christ and address him as Lord. They address him with extreme reverence, extreme humility. The centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. And I know that you're powerful enough to do it without coming to my house, but I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. There is an extreme reverence for God and recognition of who God is, but there is also within their faith a humility, a recognition of their own unworthiness. The leper realizes, hey, I shouldn't be allowed to approach the Lord. The Lord shouldn't touch me. The centurion recognizes that I am not worthy to approach the Lord. I am sure not worthy to have him come into my house. There's, it, it takes you back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their unworthiness, but then the incredible worthiness of God. Their own unworthiness, but the incredible worthiness of God. It's a picture of faith. Do we have it? And what is the quality and character of that faith? And here's the thing. Who did I say gives us faith? God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the giver of faith. So when you're seeking faith, you're asking for God to put it in your heart. And then you go on for a lifetime asking God to continue to strengthen your faith, to build that faith, to refine it. Some days it's not going to be as good as the centurions. Some days the faith gets a little wobbly and a little weak, a little cloudy. But you stick with God. You say, God, purify my faith, grow my faith, strengthen my faith. And you pursue that. And Romans 8, go read like Romans 8, 28 to 32. It promises God will do that. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the faith that you give us, that you are the giver of faith, that you are merciful, that you are loving. And I do pray that it would be our passion to pursue growing in that faith, growing in that knowledge of you and that love of you, and that it would overwhelm every aspect of our lives and that every aspect of our lives would be geared towards glorifying and honoring you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.